Uh, unfortunately, as summer goes with its ebbs and flows and vacations, um, we don't have children's ministry for the older class, um, but the younger kids, you guys can head down to children's ministry. Older kids, you guys are, you guys are in with us this morning, and we are happy to have you. Um, maybe there's just a plug there to, hey, if you're interested in serving in children's ministry, um, that's uh, an area we always have need. Um, you may have noticed um, on any given Sunday, we're typically outnumbered. So um, if, if you're one of those uh, adding to the chaos, um, love to have you serve in children's ministry. We can turn in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 18 as we make our way through um, this glorious book, seeing the foundations of our faith uh, in the book of Genesis. Part of the reality of working verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible is, uh, is you come to passages like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is good. And we need to work our way through that. If you don't have a Bible, Kyle has got them. Um, put your hand up. We want you to have uh, God's Word open in your lap. Um, I have nothing of value to say. Um, this is all I have is God's Word. And uh, we want to come and submit together under God's truth. Um, so, yeah, we want you to have that uh, in front of you. Um, my plan was, quick, let's, uh, let's take a bigger chunk and get this done. Because the next Sunday I preach uh, is uh, Kids in Service with us. Um, and hey, half our kids are here with us anyways, so, um, but this is, uh, this is God's Word, and we'll deal with some, some difficult topics this morning, um, but this is God's truth, and it is good, and it is good for us. So uh, as I began to study this passage, I was reminded of a friend of mine. Uh, he was saved later in life in a, a rather unusual way, very respectable businessman, accomplished. He was off on a business trip, and uh, as was his custom. Once the business was done, he would go and have a little fun and, uh, and had gotten himself thoroughly high and uh, somehow wandered in that state into a Christian bookstore and felt very awkward and uncomfortable. Um, but again, very proud man and wanting to save face. He thought, I need to make it look like I'm here on purpose. And so he bought a Bible and walked out. Woke up the next morning with this Bible, um, brought it home felt rather foolish for having bought a Bible and, and trying again to kind of protect his pride. He rationalized, well, the only way to make this logical is if I read it. Uh, and so he began to read the Bible, opened up at Genesis and began to work his way through, read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. By the time he got through numbers, uh, in his words, he began to think to himself, I like this God. He doesn't put up with anything. He makes Warnings, he tells people what he's going to do if they disobey, and he follows through. This guy was saved by seeing the judgment of God in the Old Testament. Now, we just need to admit, um, he's a little odd, right? That's not normal. Um, we don't like judgment. Certainly in our culture today, we don't like hearing about that, and yet the Bible's full of it, full of it. What do we do? We skip over these passages. Should we kind of push those off to the corners? Let's not talk about that. The, the God of the Old Testament, he's the angry, wrathful God. Let's talk about the God of the New Testament. Well, I'd submit you're not reading your New Testament very closely either. Um, but tempting as it is, the answer is no. No, we don't reinterpret it. We don't avoid it. We lean into it. And this is God's word. For our good, we lean into it. And more importantly, we, we learn about God from it. And you might be surprised 
Um, as you lean hard into these passages of judgment and let the Lord speak, um, these are often the places where we actually find the clearest, most marvelous displays of his mercy and his glory. So let's venture together. Genesis, uh, we're going to do 18, 16 right through to the end of 19. And, uh, and we'll look at the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and it's a story of destruction and deliverance. Now, covering a larger piece of scripture, we're not going to read it all at once uh, as we typically do. We're just going to take it piece at a time and, uh, and kind of work through it that way. Um, for context, you remember from last week, Abraham was visited by the Lord. Um, these, these three strange, mysterious figures, it appears that one of them is the Lord and two of them are angels. And, uh, and they finished this meal together which is packed full of symbolism and, and, and meaning. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you missed that. Um, but this is where the next story picks up in verse 16 at the end of this meal. Um, let's read first uh, chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Follow along as I read. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they, are, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Again, but this once, suppose there are ten found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that it is trustworthy and true in a shifting world. Thank you that it is hope in the darkness. Thank you that here we see you. In all of your glory, we see your justice and your righteousness. We see your grace and your mercy. We see your holiness and your patience. Lord, help us. Help us now as we come to your word to humble ourselves before it, to submit to it. Lord, would you soften our hardened hearts? Would you open our dull ears um, that we may know you, that we may see you more and love you more? God, I pray if there's anything that I have um, prepared that is not true to your word, God, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your word would go forth, um, that your truth would be uh, accomplishing what it sets out to do in our hearts today. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage, um, the first thing we see, chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, uh, is, is this call to trust the righteous judge. Trust the righteous judge. The first part of chapter 18, the Lord uh, had come with these two angels to, to affirm his promise to Sarah, to, to, to help her in her doubt that God's blessing this ultimate, ultimate rescue for sin that had been promised as far back as, as Genesis 3, he was coming and he would come through her body. Now the meal is over, these three figures are leaving, and like a good host, Abraham walks with them, kind of send them on their way. And it's here that this odd conversation begins. Now I think it's helpful as you set the, the understanding here, notice the Lord begins the conversation. The Lord says to one of the angels, um, in front of Abraham, um, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, come on, we do this as parents, right? But, but you only do that when you have every intention of telling the kids, right? Like, what do you think, honey? Should we tell the kids where we're going this afternoon? Um, you wouldn't answer no, not after that. Um, the, the Lord is initiating this conversation. He's drawing Abraham in. Verse 19 explains why um, because he's chosen Abraham and his family, his, his covenant people, that, that, that they would walk in righteousness before the Lord and receive the blessing of the Lord, and that through him the Lord would bless uh, all the nations of the world. And, and so this is part of God revealing his character to Abraham, his holiness and his mercy. Now, these next verses are, are interesting. And to look at, uh, at verses 20, 21... The Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is a really helpful insight, this particular passage, um, as we try to understand how the Lord speaks, because this happens frequently through Scripture. Think about this with me. Is there any doubt is there any doubt that the Lord knows what is currently happening in Sodom? Can God not look down from heaven and see the, the obvious sinfulness? Does God not have knowledge of past and current events? Of course he does. Of course he does. He can see that. He knows 
what's been happening. Uh, the, the hairs on your head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without his loving oversight. There's not one shred of doubt that the Lord knows what's happening. So why does he talk this way? Why does he interact with Abraham as if he doesn't know? Well, just stop and think about it. Because there's a a, a hundred things that have already happened that we didn't even question. All of these ways that the Lord has condescended to Abraham, that he's brought himself down to a human level to interact with Abraham. God doesn't speak Hebrew typically, or God is not confined to speaking a language, and yet here he is speaking to Abraham. God walks with Abraham. God ate a meal with Abraham. God took on human form that Abraham could see him in this. And so all of these things, in one sense, don't properly uh, reflect the character, the, sort of the nature of God in the bigger picture, But God has lowered himself to human experience to interact with Abraham, to communicate to Abraham. And so as as the Lord eats with Abraham, does does God need to eat food? No. But he's communicating this fellowship dinner together. He's telling Abraham, we're in covenant together. It's, it's, It's meaningful. It's significant. And so God is not saying here, this is not a passage you can look to and see, God doesn't have a clue what's going on in the world. No. Scripture clearly tells us God is omniscient. He knows past, present, future completely. He is sovereign over it all. But he's speaking this way, and he's sending his angels to to explore it, to get a kind of a first-hand account, if you will. He's communicating to Abraham, I'm not a capricious God. I'm not angry and, and off the handle. This isn't some sudden outburst burst of wrath. God doesn't just throw fire and brimstone on a whim. He's not some tyrannical despot who just kind of unexpectedly cries out, off with their heads, and and so it goes. No. No, he's showing, I have an intimate, careful understanding of what's happening here. I am slow and patient. I've been watching this. God's judgment is based on a full, complete understanding of the situation. It is deliberate, it is careful, it is slow. Verse 22, these two angels depart for Sodom, and Abraham is left then standing before the Lord. And there's this very interesting exchange. Uh, It looks like Abraham is, is bartering with God. Will you spare the city if there are 50 righteous. And God says, no, I'll spare. I will not destroy the city if there are 50 righteous. And Abraham's, man, he would have been a tricky guy to, to barter with. This is sly. Well, what if, the, what if there were just five missing? Now, would you, would you have wrath yet for the lack of five? And, and he works the Lord down, seemingly, to, to 20, to 10. But notice Abraham's disposition towards Sodom first. He's removed from Sodom, He has nothing to do with their sinfulness, and yet Abraham's heart is breaking for them. He's longing that they would be rescued, that they would be spared from destruction, and so he's pleading with the Lord on their behalf. But notice why he's pleading. What is the basis for Abraham's prayer to the Lord? He he pleads for them, standing firmly, trusting completely in the righteousness of God, that God is just and fair. Verse 25 is is key to all of this. 
Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. That's fantastic anchor for us right there. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. Abraham's prayer is is rooted in the justice of God, the righteousness of God. He is confident that God will absolutely do what is perfectly right, and that's why he's asking God these questions. And let's not forget, it's the Lord who has drawn him in. God has invited him, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. Ask me. Let's have this conversation. Um, Derek Kidner puts it this way. He said, it would be easy to to say that this prayer comes near to haggling, but the right word is exploring. Abraham is feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith. He trusts God. And he's, he's not sure what's going on, but he's, so he's feeling his way forward. Lord, wait a second. Would you destroy it if there were 50 righteous there? No, of course not, Abraham. Okay, I didn't think so. Well, what about 45? No. The Lord has set this parameters, this conversation, and Abraham is exploring um, by faith, leaning on the Lord. Um, I think we need to look at ourselves and ask, do we have that heart of Abraham? Do we pray for our our world, our nation, our, our town, the people in your workplace? Do we see wicked sinners and scoff? Or does our heart ache? Do we plead to the Lord for mercy? It's so easy for us to feel separated from that and to, to pretend like we're in some different category of holiness, that we are not, in fact, the worst of all sinners, um, and say, well, God will judge them. It's a good thing, too, rather than feeling the weight of God's wrath? Do we have the heart of Abraham? Notice as well, um, the, Lord, the, the Lord never makes a single counteroffer. Um, if this is bartering, the Lord is terrible at it because he gives at every push. He accepts every offer as he invites Abraham into this conversation. Abraham's not pushing God to be more gracious than he was going to be Rather, this conversation, we see the heart of the Lord is is fully bent already toward mercy, toward grace. He's ready and willing to spare the whole city if even ten righteous people are found there. We'll see um, later as the city is destroyed and one righteous family, um, one righteous person, and that righteousness even is suspect, is brought out. This is a judge who can be trusted. He is just. Do you have that kind of unwavering confidence in the justice of God? We need that. That the judge of all the earth will do what is just. He is a good and righteous God. That's hard. It's hard. We want to we come to Scripture, and if you're going to talk about the Bible in a more secular context, you'll see this switch that flips so quickly. Um, we come as judges over God's Word. Well, God who would do that? I could never trust that God. I would never follow a God who does this. Well, that God is evil. Are we coming as judges over God, or, or are we hearing Him, trusting that he is just. Maybe he knows, sees more than we do. And let's just admit it, that's hard. That's hard to hold on to. 
especially when those unrighteous and wicked people that we're talking about include the ones that we love, include people close to us. When it's our sons or daughters or friends or parents who don't know the Lord, who've rebelled against God. Every one of us, I'm sure, has that. Friends, family, so far as we can tell, may well be among those who will one day know the wrath of God. It's almost unbearable to linger on that thought. What do you do with that? How do you process the righteousness of God? God's righteous judgment against someone that I love. Again, verse 25 is our anchor. It has to be. This is the the rock in the quicksand. This is the harbor in the storm. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. He will not be unfair. His judgment is dreadful, but he is and, and he always will be perfectly just. He will do what is right. I have to trust that, that in eternity, even though I, I almost certainly will be separated from some that I love, even though God, God's wrath is, is fearful and it will pour out on people that I desperately care about, seeing the Lord in his glory, seeing the fullness of who he is, seeing sin and justice and righteousness in in high-definition clarity, my soul in that day will be at peace. I will rest in confidence that the judge of all the earth has done what is right. That's not easy to say. That's hard to wrestle with. And that should never for for one second um, lighten our burden to pray for these people, to share the gospel with them, to plead with them, come to the Lord, today is the day of salvation, trust in Christ, repent and be saved. But this confidence remains, God is good and he will do what is just. He is slow to anger, he is abounding in steadfast love, he is eager to show mercy and he is slow to bring judgment and wrath. And in the end, we will worship him for his justice. We get further, speaking into the the judgment of the Lord. Um, Do you trust the righteousness of this just judge? Secondly, this passage calls us to turn from the unrighteous world. Trust in the righteous judge, turn from the unrighteous world world. Um, Look with me, chapter 19. Um, We'll go all the way through to verse 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and, has, uh, and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard, hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me this great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities that grew in the, um, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to that place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So these two angels headed down to Sodom in the evening. Lot saw them there, much like Abraham did in the previous passage. He rose up to meet them. He greeted them, honored them, bowed to the ground, and offers them hospitality. Come, come to my house. Come spend the night here. 
And yet before they lay down to sleep, there's a a banging on the door. Verse 4 tells us the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man. Question of how many are righteous in the city of Sodom? Here's an answer. They surround the house. They call out, where are these men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now this passage, as you can imagine, has been fiercely contested. Often argued in our day, um, the problem here was not the sin of homosexuality. They would say, rather, the, the sin of Sodom that they are condemned for is their lack of hospitality. And it's true. As you read this passage, there is a distinct contrast between the, the hospitality of Abraham in the beginning of chapter 18 and the lack of hospitality in Sodom. That definitely runs through here. But as you look at this passage, um, the word, uh, the, 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 the people say, bring them out, we want to know them. There's the argument for hospitality, we want to get to know them. And it's true, um, again, that, that word know is, is a euphemism, it's a little bit ambiguous, it's, it's used here uh, in this way, but it's, but it's used a few times elsewhere as well. If we just flip back, Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. Cain knew his wife and she bore Enoch. Those instances are pretty clear. There's no ambiguity there. And what more would be a stark contrast from the great hospitality of Abraham to now the threat of egregious sin? It is a lack of hospitality, but it's a lack of hospitality wrapped up in in this sin of homosexual activity. If there's any doubt, after looking at Genesis on its own, um, we can look then to the New Testament. Jude 7 says this. Again, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit interpreting Scripture. Jude verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, sexual morality in an unnatural way, serve as an example of, by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Um, It's pretty clear. Uh, Now, you would probably be shocked if you were to read broadly how sophisticated and, and to be honest, how convincing some of the arguments are um, trying to scrub the condemnation of homosexuality from the pages of the Bible. But the fact is, the reality is, if we simply read the text and submit to it as it is, take it as it's written, it speaks very clearly. It's not in doubt. The city of Sodom has become entrenched, most likely in all manner of sexual sin and deviation, so much so that all of the men, young and old, have been drawn into this debauchery, are are captivated by their lust. By the way, um, good indication, um, this behavior can be learned. There's a social contagion aspect to it, that all of them are caught up in this. And they're so swept up in their lust that even being struck with blindness, they continue to grope for the door. Can you imagine? Even after that, Lot's future sons-in-law return home. Lot is sent out to, to warn them, to bring them out of the city, to save them from destruction. Verse 14, Lot says, get up, get out of this place. The Lord is going to destroy this city. And in just 
shockingly tragic response, he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. You funny old man. Really? The old man in the sky is angry with us? God's going to judge us? They are so deeply wrapped up in their own self-serving, lustful passions, they're not even able to hear the warning of God. They count it as a joke. What a terrifying place to be. And yet how familiar that is in so many parts of our culture. May the Lord have mercy. The fate of the city is clear enough. God is sending his wrath. He will destroy it with literal fire and brimstone. Now we read before that the, the kings and the, the, uh, the, uh, the battle in that area fell into tar pits. This seems to have been a, a volcanically active area. Um, that does not change that this is an act of the Lord. God did this. The state of the city is clear, but the story of Lot is, is much more complicated. It's very interesting comment about Lot um, that helps us frame this. 2 Peter 2, 7-9. Look at what Peter says. He says, If he, that's God, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as of that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under the punishment, uh, under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter refers to him as righteous Lot. I had a hard time with that. I don't see a lot of righteous Lot here. He's made some bad decisions. But we have to be reminded of the definition of righteousness that has been building through the book of Genesis. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Hebrews eleven seven 7 tells us that Noah received the righteousness that comes by faith. Peter doesn't call Lot the righteous Lot because he was perfect and holy and did everything right. Righteousness is not about a perfect holy life. Righteous means he trusts in the Lord. He trusts in God's promise. And yet even trusting in the Lord at some level, Lot has made this just series of terrible decisions. And as a result, he has this turmoil in his soul. Genesis 14, when Abram and Lot first parted ways. Remember that? Abraham was, was gracious, trusting in the Lord's provision. Abraham said to Lot, you choose. Wherever you want to go, you go. And it was clear there was the promised land that God had promised to give to Abraham to, to bless and there was the, the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Jordan Valley. And, and, and Lot looked out and it looked green and lush as it looked like the garden of God. And, and we were told even in that time the, the reputation of the people was wickedness. And yet Lot felt safer settling near the city than he did sojourning through the wilderness. And so Lot found comfort settling in his tents near the city. By the time we get to chapter 19, 
Not only has he gone from near the city to now in the city, but he's sitting in the gate of the city. That's where the judges would sit. That was where the, the men of prominence would be sit. He's, he's risen, to, risen to a place of respect in the city. And not only that, he's betrothed his daughters to men in the city. You see the progression towards comfort in the sinful world. He's the, he's the frog in the, in the slowly heating pot. From far it looks lush and, and green, and so you, you move a little closer, but you determine to keep it at arm's length, but your arm just keeps getting shorter and shorter, and before you know it, you've moved in, you've made it your home. He's a resident of the city. Lot trusts the Lord, but he lives in Sodom, and he's investing his life there. He's spending himself building his home there. Because of that, his soul is tormented. You can see this torment as, he, as he's trying to fend off the wicked men and he offers his daughters to them. He's trying to, to honor the, the, the rule of hospitality and protect his guests, but it is no less sinful for him to offer his daughters. Find yourself in a place where your choice is one sin or another. You've, you've made some bad decisions already. That's never the options the Lord gives us. Here he is, tormented in turmoil, trusting the Lord in that living with one foot in the world, living with half of his heart wrapped up in what God said he would destroy. So many believers live in constant turmoil, constant stress and torture because the decisions they've made to invest in this world, to make life here. And as is so often the case, and we see here, if the parents have one foot in the world, the children have both. As we'll see in the next passage, Lot's daughters tragically are children of Sodom. And so as morning dawned for the last time over this wicked city, the angels tell Lot up, take your wife, take your daughters, flee, be gone, leave. And shockingly, verse 16, Lot lingers. His wife gets the, the bad rap for, for looking back, but Lot lingered. He's hemming and hawing. He's, he's stalling because he's come to love and, and invest his life here. The angels actually grab him. They seize him and they set him out of the city. By the mercy of God, he is rescued in spite of his own sinful heart. He's dragged away. Even then, he pleads with the angels, don't send me to the, to the wilderness. This is the same choice he had before. Will you be a sojourner as the Lord has called Abraham to be? Will you, will you live in tents and not put your roots down in this world? And he says, no, no, give me this little city. Give me another Sodom. He's clinging to it. To quote Kidner again, he says, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. So at this point, his wife, even more so caught up, looks back to her own destruction. Uh, again, this is, this is so much more than a glance of the eyes. This wasn't, about a, this wasn't a visual thing. It was a heart thing. Her heart is caught up in the city. She is longing for that city that is being destroyed, and so she joins it in its destruction. She's turned into a pillar of salt. 
And then note, in stark contrast, as we come out the other side, there's Abraham, shows up again in verse 27. Very poetically, he returns in the morning to the same place he had stood the night before talking with the Lord. And he looks down over Sodom and Gomorrah. Without a word, he overlooked the valley and watched the smoke rise from the wrath of God. Abraham trusts the Lord. Abraham is a sojourner. He's a, he's a traveler with no, no roots in this world. This is not his home. He is faithfully awaiting the promised land. That's where his heart is at. Lot insists on trying to be invested and, and get comfortable to have, have his life anchored here in this world and, and, and he is in constant turmoil in his soul because of it. Make no mistake. The Lord will judge the wickedness of this world that we live in. This passage is filled with parallels to, to Noah's flood and the destruction there, uh, parallels to the, uh, the Tower of Babel and God's judgment there. The message is clear. God will not leave wickedness unpunished. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. And the just response to evil and rebellion against God is destruction. Believer, turn away from the unrighteous world. This is not our home. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world uh, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These things are passing away. God's judgment is coming. The destruction of the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we see these as these like massive cataclysmic events. Things that happened in the past. That'll never happen again, right? No, those are just warning shots. I don't know if you were outside last Monday. Um, I was working away, building a deck. Slowly but surely, these clouds started to roll in. And I began to pack up my power tools because they were borrowed. Um, and I wanted them in out of the rain. And as I'm packing things up and running into my garage, um, I noticed four drops fall. Splash, 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 splash. And as I got my last uh, of my tools into the garage, the floodgates opened. And it was seconds. All of a sudden, the, the street out front of my house is running with water. The gutters are overflowing. Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the Canaanites. These stories of judgment in the Bible, those are but the first few drops that hit the ground. The downpour is coming, and it will be fierce. Jesus warned Luke 17, 30 to 33, So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on his housetop with goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. 
Whoever seeks to preserve his life, as Lot did, this is my home, I'm going to invest here, I'm going to build a life here, you'll, you'll lose it. You'll be wiped away in the judgment of God. Whatever loses his life, whoever is willing to say, this is not my home, I'm trusting the promises of God, I'm trusting in, in what's to come, he's the one who will keep his life. If Jesus were to come back today, would you be looking back? Would you be lingering? Oh, but I never quite got that vacation that I was hoping for. I never quite finished the the renovations of my house. I never quite got that car restored. I never, what? Would your heart be longing for the things of this world, the things we've built here? Lot, slowly but surely, drifted toward comfort in this world. His wife, fully invested. Because of her love for Sodom, she forfeited her life. Christian, how much is your life wrapped up in this earthly experience? Don't live like Lot, tormented in his soul. One foot in the world. We ought to be like Abraham. Just travelers here, just passing through. Citizens of a world to come. Yes, distressed and praying for God's mercy, wanting to see repentance, wanting to see uh, God's grace poured out, but in the end, standing at a distance, not, not personally invested in the same way, certainly not invested in that which the Lord will judge. Trust in the righteous judge. Turn away from the unrighteous world. Uh, and then finally, turn to the only Savior. Turn to the only Savior. Look with me at uh, verses 30 to 38, end of the chapter here. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. And so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their fathers drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. What a mess. What a disaster. This is the, the legacy of his investment in Sodom. Now, if you're wondering, um, where's the only Savior in this passage? I didn't see it. Well, you're on the right path. You're figuring out that's exactly the point. This section is one of those parallels to the story of Noah and the flood. Noah and his family are saved out from judgment. God's wrath comes. 
this family is, is rescued and the next account is Noah gets drunk and falls into some kind of sexual sin. Here it happens again. Lot and his family are rescued from judgment and his daughters come up with this grotesque plan. And by their seduction, they both become pregnant by their father. And the point of the story is the same as it is in the account of Noah. This superficial judgment is not enough. It's not enough. Sinfulness still exists in the heart of man. The Lord delivered Lot and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but the problem of sin still remains. It's in the human heart. As one commentator puts it, that dark night, Sodom was reborn. We still need a rescuer. We still need the one that was promised just the chapter before. This is our only hope. And this passage should, should build that eager anticipation of hope. Do you notice the theme through chapter 19 of light and darkness? The angels came to Sodom in the evening. The house is surrounded at night. The angels strike the men with blindness. And then there's the turning. 1915, it says, As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife, your daughters. 1923, it says, The, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire uh, out from the Lord out of heaven. The sin of Sodom is described in the, in the darkness of night, but the destruction of of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous breaks through with the rising of the morning sun. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, um, but you see the battle happening at Helm's Deep and the, the, the hordes of dark monster orcs are moving in and people are dying and they've pulled back to the very depths of the keep and there is no hope left. And what happens? On the east, the third day, Gandalf comes over the hill and the light shines and the army comes and, and wipes them out, rescues them. That's, that's exactly what Tolkien, he says it's not an allegory, but he can't help it. It's exactly what's happening. The light has shone, breaking through the darkness. It's pointing back, first of all, to the beginning. When God created the world, day one, God said, let there be light. The first day out of seven, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and it was good. That's where it all began. God's good creation bursting forth with light out of darkness. The flood account is filled with these parallels of a new creation. God is wiped clean, and now it's go, be fruitful, multiply. There's, there's the animals multiplying again. The world is starting over here in Sodom and Gomorrah. At first light, God brings destruction and deliverance. He's promising the end of sin and the coming of a new creation. He's saying, this is what it will look like when I fulfill my promise. There will be judgment and there will be new creation. About 1,500 years later, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, had themselves fallen into sin and were on the verge of being taken away into exile as the judgment of God came on them. The Lord again pointed forward to the coming of this promise. Isaiah 9, 2. 
On that day it will be said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That's, what it's, that's what's coming. That's what it's going to be like. And after 200 years after that, Israel now had returned from exile, had, had rebuilt the temple. They're still waiting for the, the rescuer. And in the last chapter, in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 1-3 says this, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, uh, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze in the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear the name of the Lord, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Destruction and deliverance are coming. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. For 300 years after Malachi, there was silence. Not a prophet, not a miracle, not a single word from God. And then Zechariah, the priest, whose wife is miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist, the forebearer of the Messiah. This passage immediately preceding the birth of Jesus, he's he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to prophesy and he says this, Luke 1, 78, 79, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The sunrise is coming. Jesus will come first to to pay the penalty for sin for those who are his. On the cross, the wrath of God is poured out against sin and is placed on him. There is salvation for the wicked in him. There is a rescue even for the sinner. The people of Moab, the offspring of of Lot's daughter and Lot. And out of Moab comes Ruth, who is a Moabitess, who becomes then actually part of the genealogy of Jesus. She's brought into the family. So on the cross... The wrath of God is poured out, and at midday, what happens? Darkness falls on the earth. The ground shook and the rocks split. Three days later, Luke 24 begins with these words, but on the first day of the week, number one out of seven, the first day of the week at early dawn, they went out to the tomb taking spices to be that they had prepared, and they found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. The rising of the sun, S-U-N, and the rising of the sun, S-O-N. It's the promise of this new creation in Christ. It will begin afresh. But for the wicked, for this sin-cursed world, Revelation 6, 12 warns, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood. The wrath of God will come again in its fullness. There is a a coming destruction far worse than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
complete eternal destruction of every wicked thing and of every person who has not bent the knee to Jesus Christ. And so, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And the idea is there they will be judged. Since, therefore, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous dwell. Church, this is not our home. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We are citizens of a new creation and and just traveling through. We are eagerly awaiting that eternal rest. That's where our hopes are. That's where our lives and our, our hearts are to be wrapped up. The judgment of the Lord is coming on this place. Trust in the righteous judge. Turn from the unrighteous world and turn to the only Savior. Let me pray. Father, you are just. And God, we just confess that we are not righteous as you. And so we wrestle sometimes as we see your judgment poured out. It makes us uncomfortable. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to trust that you are just that you are good. Lord, help us to see this world for what it is. God, we are so, so easily seduced by the things of the world. We so easily have our hearts wrapped up here. Help us, Father, to set our eyes on you, to set our hope in the promise of a new heavens and a new earth that is to come that we might live in this world in righteousness and holiness, that we might be bearers of this great gospel of grace, calling sinners to repentance. We might walk faithfully before you, trusting in you, eagerly awaiting that day, knowing that, that you are a God who is just, but who is also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy toward us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.